Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. So it looks like things are finally starting to quiet down a bit at the court, and that makes this a good time to start our SCOTUS summer reading list. But we're going to ease into it with a movie. A new documentary that's coming out soon called The Fight takes a behind-the-scenes look at ACLU attorneys battling it out against the Trump administration in some of the most high-profile legal challenges over the last few years. And we got to talk with several of those attorneys recently about the film that's coming out on July 31st. We talked about the cases they worked on and about the just-completed Supreme Court term as well. But first, we're going to quickly catch you up on a couple of high court developments, one of which we learned about right after our most recent episode dropped on Friday, of course. That's right. We learned that Justice Ginsburg is battling cancer yet again for a fifth time. She said in a statement released last Friday, July 17th, that it was discovered in February. She started chemotherapy in May and that a scan on July 7th showed significant reduction of the liver lesions and no new disease. Hmm. May. That... That was right when the justices were hearing arguments, right, Jordan? That's right. Well, in her statement, the justice reiterated her notorious line for whenever she's asked about whether she'll retire, noting that she's kept up with opinion writing and all her other court work. Ginsburg said, quote, I have often said that I will remain a member of this court as long as I can do the job full steam. I remain fully able to do that. She also pointed out that her recent hospitalizations to remove gallstones and to treat an infection were unrelated to what she called this recurrence of cancer. She said she was issuing the statement now because she's satisfied that her treatment course is clear. And Kimberly, we had talked about the issue of health transparency in connection with the incident of Chief Justice Roberts's Father's Day fall. And so this is the latest example showing that the justices all take different approaches, not just about what health information they release, but also when. Right. So the other thing we'll mention briefly relates to the Trump subpoena litigation. The justices had agreed to speed up issuing the judgment in the Manhattan jury case so that the lower courts could get started on their work. There, though, both parties had agreed to do so. But we learned on Monday that the court denied the House's request to do the same in the companion case. And the Trump administration had actually objected to that one. And for those following the two cases with an eye on what they could result in the president's financial information potentially becoming public, uh, this means that you'll have to wait at least a little while longer. And that latest news came in an order with dissent only noted by Justice Sotomayor. And what was the court's reasoning in denying one order and granting the other? Well, as we discussed the shadow docket on our last episode with Professor Vladek, and none of the justices explained themselves, so who knows? And I guess we don't even know if it was eight to one, right? That's right. All right. Well, that's enough news uh, for summertime. Let's, uh, let's go to the movies. Let's do it. Nearly 2,000 children have been separated from their families. Hey, see how you? Good morning. Hundreds of parents have just lost their kids. Free our children now! My job is to make sure the horror of what's going on stays front and center. You believe in punishment for abortion? It has to be some form of punishment. You can't be serious. The government can't ban people from accessing abortion. This is the president's declaration of like open season on trans people. That was a clip from The Fight, a documentary coming out July 31st, taking an inside look at the ACLU's legal battles against the Trump administration. Among the high-profile cases featured in the film are ones on abortion, immigration, and the president's transgender military ban. 
With us here to discuss those fights are several of the lawyers featured in the film. So thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. We're hoping that everyone can introduce themselves and then mention the case that they worked on in the film so then we can identify everyone from there that way. I'm Lee Gallant. Um, I'm a lawyer at the National Office of the ACLU, and I was in the film primarily for the family separation case, and, and also there was a brief scene about the challenge to the travel ban in the very beginning of the film. Um, I'm Chase Strangio. Uh, I'm with the LGBT and HIV project at the National ACLU and was in the film working on the uh, challenge to the trans military ban. And I'm Josh Block. I'm also an attorney at the ACLU's LGBT project. And I also worked on the challenge to Trump's ban on transgender people in the military. And I'm Bridget Amiri, and I'm with the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project. And I worked on the Jane Doe case in the film. Great. So, um, Lee, I think this one might be for you. The ACLU has been at this for a while now, fighting um, against all kinds of administrations over the years. But the film here really focuses on the Trump administration and its initiatives. And I'm just wondering, having litigated cases um, against this administration and others before, do you see the government actions that you're fighting now as really different in kind or just degree? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think both are different in degree and kind. I, I think one thing that's happened with this administration is they are literally trying to remake the immigration system and every aspect of it, but particularly focusing on people from Central America and asylum seekers and children. And so we've almost literally every month had major, major cases to file cases that in any other year might have been the one thing we focused on, the biggest thing by far, and now they're coming once a month, sometimes once a week. But I think they're also different in kind. They are much more um, extreme. They are much harsher. The taking away of little children from their parents, including babies, is the worst thing I have seen in more than 25 years of doing this work, not even close. Um, and there's just policies that are so harsh and so gratuitous that we have not seen anything like that from either a Democratic or Republican administration. And I think that's why in the summer of 2018, when the family separation practice was revealed to the public, there was outrage from both liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans. And what people said was, look, we may not agree with the ACLU on macro immigration policy or every aspect of, of their views on immigration, but we all need to come together to say, you don't take little children from their parents. And that was Laura Bush writing an op-ed in the Washington Post. That was the Pope coming out. That was conservative religious leaders. It was sort of down the line. And I think, you know, Republican administrations, people in the Republican administration said, look, everyone knew if you wanted to just be as harsh as possible, you take children away but no one in any prior administration thought, let's do that, especially because it won't actually change things. People who are desperate and fleeing possible death are gonna come no matter what. I mean, every time I ask the parent, would you have come anyway if you had known your child was gonna be taken away? They just sort of shrugged and said, well, what choice did I have? 
one of the great things about the film is that it gave a sense of the fast pace and behind the scenes nature of a lot of this litigation. And so uh, whatever view one takes of the merits of some of the government's positions over the last few years, one thing that's objectively true is that the sheer volume of emergency applications has increased. For example, at the Supreme Court, and this question is really up for grabs for anybody, does anyone want to talk about uh, can you, does it really, do you, are you really feeling that pace of increased litigation just as a lawyer and as a litigator, even aside from the merits of what you're all arguing about recently? Sure. This is Bridget. I, I'd say without a doubt, there's, there's no question. Uh, this, I've been at the ACLU for over 15 years and uh, we've always uh, been busy fighting restrictions on access to abortion at the state level and at the federal level. We've also sued every presidential administration uh, since I've been there as well. Uh, but the, the frenzy and the pace of work um, in the last four years has been unparalleled uh, compared to any other time that I have been working on these issues. And the aggressiveness um, from the Department of Justice um, in these fights um, has also been, I think, unparalleled um, that, that in any other time that I've seen. And so I think all of us routinely are working, uh, you know, often around the clock, um, working, handing off drafts of briefs, you know, at 1am to a partner on our team, we get up early, you know, pick it up, that kind of just onslaught. So you decided since it was really busy, you just throw a movie in on top of everything. <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> so this one's also um, kind of for anybody who wants to answer it, but obviously some time has gone by since when you guys filmed the the movie and now wondering if you guys have any reactions to the just completed Supreme Court term and whether or not it dealt with some of the same issues that you guys are dealing with in the film. Uh, well, this is Chase. I can, I can start. I mean, it's, it is interesting to, to watch so our, the trans military, you know, ban a lot of that footage is from three years ago. And, and so, the rhetoric was just emerging from the Trump administration in some ways around the aggressive anti-trans positions that they were taking, even though it started, you know, right when um, after Trump's inauguration. I think that the sort of going off of what Bridget said in terms of the pace, there was there's the pace of the litigation, both against the federal government and against state governments in our work. And then there's the sort of emotional pace of sort of how many um, sort of rhetorical things that we're constantly contending with. Um, and the last, you know, since April of 2019, when we've been working on the Title VII cases at the Supreme Court, it was just, you know, that sense of despair was really hard to escape um, in sort of bringing up these huge cases to the court after having sort of prevailed in the lower courts. Uh, you can see it in the film too, where a lot of times we're, we're having success in the lower courts and then losing at the Supreme Court, obviously the census case being a really great exception um, in the film. Um, but then this term, you know, we had so many incredible moments, um, particularly in our in our Title VII litigation, which, um, you know, you sort of, I got used to the filmmakers capturing these epic moments. And I was like, we won it. Where, where are they? Where's Elise? You know, it was like, because um, I think so much of what was going on for me in the background um, in the latter part of the filming was that was sort of the fear of losing the protections that we had worked so hard to secure in the lower courts once the Supreme Court granted cert in Bostock and the related cases. And so um, it's it's sort of amazing to sort of hold the sort of complexity of this last term alongside the film and just 
all of the sort of rage and grief alongside the moments of, of joy and celebration. And, and where I land with it is we, we can't have four more years of this. You know, we, it's it, it just the, the relentless pace combined with the fear of sort of, we can't hold the line at the Supreme Court much longer. Um, and we, we came out with some important wins, obviously, you know, lots of horribly tragic losses too, but it was, it was really amazing um, on June 15th, at least for me to sort of come out of the Title VII cases, living to fight another day. This is Josh. I think, you know, what's been striking for these last four years is there's sort of, at least in the context of LGBT rights, uh, an unrelenting assault from all sides in all aspect of life um, that this administration has been waging. So there's the military, which is, you know, a huge example. Um, it's one of the, like a concrete way that uh, the government is officially discriminating against trans people. But, you know, whether it's healthcare, um, whether it's uh, you know, education. So I mean, one of the very first actions this administration took was revoking guidance from the Department of Education protecting trans kids. It's um, folding over um, and letting Texas win in a lawsuit to um, take away protections from healthcare. It's randomly filing uh, motions to support um, claims from um, cisgender girls that trans uh, students should be excluded from sports. I think every single brief this administration has filed in any aspect uh, of, of protections for LGBT folks has been basically the same as the harshest, you know, um, amicus briefs we've, we've had to, you know, look at and discard as fringe arguments before. And so the cumulative effect of that is really huge and it hasn't let up after Bostock. I mean, they're sort of doubling down in all their other, you know, areas saying, oh yeah, you can still discriminate in healthcare and in education. Um, it, it's still going just as strong as it was before. And so following up a bit along the lines of the, the types of victories that you're securing when you do win, one of the cases that we saw discussed in the film was the census case, uh, which uh, Dale was handling. We saw in that case that Chief Justice Roberts voted with the Democratic appointees to side with you there, but in a way that allowed the Trump administration to essentially still potentially accomplish what it wanted to, or at least to give it another try. And then uh, this term we saw uh, the DACA decision and we wonder, do you all see a similarity there between the DACA decision and the census decision depicted in the film and taking that to a broader point, what does that say about the sort of victories that liberals, Democrats, progressives, however you want to put it, have been securing from the Supreme Court these days when you do win? I can go because of DACA. Um, I think that that's exactly right to draw that parallel. I think that some of our biggest wins on our side have been narrow rulings where the Chief Justice has said the Trump administration is not following the rules and has left the administration the ability to go back and try and do it right. That's a real fear for DACA, that this administration will take the step of trying to fix the problems in DACA. Um, you know, we held them off in the census. And so I think those victories are critical because you need to buy time. But if there are another four years of the Trump administration, 
I think we may see them go back and try and and do things um, differently in some of those cases. But I think the Chief Justice may also be giving them a blueprint of how to enact new policies without um, them being vulnerable to, to legal attacks. So you're absolutely right. Those are those are critical victories, but they're ones that are not necessarily permanent. And so they, they leave us with a lot of fear about what this administration will try and do before the election or if the president is reelected after the election. So Bridget, in the film, you talk about arguing in front of then Judge Kavanaugh um, when he was on the DC circuit. Now that he's Justice Kavanaugh, um, has he been what you've expected? <clears throat> hundred percent. And, you know, to, so to the extent that, you know, he was saying in his confirmation hearing that he was bound by precedent and that he would follow precedent, um, he would follow Roe versus Wade, uh, we see that to be a farce um, in his recent dissent in the June Medical versus Russo case, for example. The Chief Justice sided with the um, um, the, uh, the four Democratic appointees um, to say that stare decisis required uh, the court to strike down a Louisiana law requiring abortion providers to have admitting privileges because it was identical to the same law that the court struck down in 2016. And Kavanaugh is in, in the dissent in that case. Um, so all of our you know, red flags, all of our warning signs, all of our alarm bells that we were sounding about um, his appointment, uh, you know, specifically with respect to reproductive rights, um, have been confirmed. And so sort of, uh, to some extent, another side of that, or just a different aspect in terms of talking about the court personnel, uh, wondering if anyone, maybe Chase or Josh, uh, speaking of the Bostock case, if you can talk about how that one came down and whether there were any surprises from either of you there in terms of uh, Gorsuch writing the opinion or Chief Justice Roberts uh, being there as well. I mean, well, just in terms of their records before the court, I, I sort of thought Kavanaugh would be uh, more likely to vote for us than, than the chief. Um, just he'd given some opinions he'd written uh, on the lower court about textualism. I mean, what's interesting about the, the, the chief is, if you remember back in the marriage cases, and uh, this was the challenge to Prop 8, uh, you know, and seems like forever ago during oral argument, you know, the chief did say, well, if like, if Joe can marry Susie, but can't marry Sam, why isn't that sex discrimination? And everyone was sort of, you know, surprised and it, it didn't sort of manifest itself in any of the rest of the decision. But, um, you know, you can sort of look back and see, you know, traces of, of, of a, common, a common theme. But I think that most observers wouldn't describe Roberts as, a self-described textualist. So it was very welcome to have it be a 6-3 decision with him in the majority. So Lee, we talked a little bit about um, the DACA case and about immigration under the Trump administration in general, but wondering um, you know, over the last four years, do you feel like you're winning the immigration fight? Um. I guess what I would say is, I don't know that we're winning, but I do think, I think things would have been significantly worse. I think we've had enough victories to either stop certain policies or significantly slow them down. But have we had a complete win over the last four years? No, I think that would have been unrealistic, but I think certainly the fighting has 
has been worth it. I think things would be way, way worse. There's a bunch of policies that have now been enjoined. Family separation has largely been stopped, although there are some continuing aspects of it at the margins. But I definitely think we've had enough significant wins to make it more than worthwhile. And I, and I don't think we really, e even if we weren't winning and we weren't having as much success as we are, I think we have to fight. I think there's no way we can just say, fine, go and do this, demonize immigrants, enact policies that are going to leave children and families in serious danger. So we would have been fighting anyway, but I do think we've had a significant amount of success. I mean, I, I just, I, I do find like, you know, just the portions with Lee's, Lee's work to just be so gutting and visceral um, in a way that, you know, you just sort of, uh, you know, it's hard, you know, as a, as a parent uh, to not feel like there's no Im more important work in the world <laughs> than what, than what Lee was doing like at that moment. So, you know, I, I've said this before, but you know, being a part of being at the ACLU and having these colleagues is a very good coping mechanism to feel a little bit less powerless. You know, you can sort of fight in your issue area of expertise, but, you know, you see, you know, gassing of protesters, you know, Lafayette Park and knowing that, you know, the ACLU is going to be like filing a lawsuit about it like the next day. Otherwise, you're just sort of staring in horror at, at what you're watching. And while we're offering compliments, for some reason, Kimberly, your tweets are always the fastest on the Supreme Court updates. And so I do really appreciate you for that. I'll join in that compliment as well. Yeah. Well, thanks. I was just always like, just going. Having seen the behind the scenes of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, um, you know, the, the film obviously took a look at some of the biggest battles that you guys have been fighting, but wondering if you can tell our listeners about some of the coming fights that we should be keeping our our eyes on? Um, I think this is probably goes for more than just an immigrant's rights. Um, I think COVID has added yet another layer of difficulty and complexity. I mean, obviously for everyone in the world, but, you know, for our work. So I think those are some of the next biggest fights and they're ongoing right now, because one of the things that in the immigration area, the administration has been trying to do for the entire four years is close the Southern border to asylum seekers and to take away protections for children. And we have, you know, there's been a sort of patchwork of rulings. We've stopped the most extreme ones, but there are still um, policies that are ongoing. But now they're using COVID as the pretext to completely shut down the border to children and asylum seekers. And if we don't, we're challenging that, but if we don't ultimately prevail on that, that's going to be the sort of pinnacle of what the administration is trying to do because all the other restrictions on asylum will be meaningless because what they're doing is saying because of COVID, we don't have to comply with any of the laws relating to asylum or children. We can bypass all of that and use public health laws to immediately expel families and children. So we are seeing thousands of people, including um, you know, thousands of children who are now being arrested secretly put in a hotel for a few days and then expelled back to danger without any asylum screening whatsoever. And so I think that's a huge sort of fight for us on the horizon as well as getting people out of immigration detention 
um, because they're sort of like death sentences now in these immigration spikes. I'm going to let other people jump in because I suspect COVID and other things are on their plate as well. Yeah, so this is Bridget, and, and I would echo you know, the theme that we has, has started here, which is that COVID has um, added uh, a tremendous layer to the, the, the work that we're, we've been doing. And so in, in Reproductive Freedom Project, we had, I think, 30 cases um, before COVID. And within the first few weeks, um, we had to file seven emergency cases. Um, it states trying to use COVID as a pretext to ban abortion, uh, saying that quote unquote elective medical pre procedures needed to, to cease. And um, so um, it was an, again, incredibly intense, fast paced nature. We were racing against the clock to try to keep clinic doors open and make sure patients could be seen and not be forced to carry their pregnancies to term. And, and so we have a number of cases, even pre-COVID, um, challenging bans on abortion at the earliest stages of pregnancy or just flat out abortion bans. Um, so those continue to percolate through the courts as well as um, the um, other restrictions that are designed to push abortion out of reach. And I mean, I, I think another thing that's happened over the past four years is that our opposing counsel in all these cases have become federal judges. Um, so both our opposing counsel, like from during the Obama administration, um, you know, uh, has, you know, I know in, in, for example, you know, in Gavin Grimm's case, opposing counsel at the Supreme Court is Kyle Duncan, who's now a judge on the Fifth Circuit and wrote the Fifth Circuit opinion um, upholding the ban on abortion um, that the Bridges was referring to. He's also written an opinion misgendering uh, pro se trans prisoners and said that using the proper pronoun would be evidence of bias in favor of trans people. But uh, there are so many government lawyers, Chad Riedler, um, you know, defended some of the most abhorrent policies that, that we all litigated and he's on the Sixth Circuit now. So, you know, obviously someone's career doesn't always predict what judge they're going to be, but uh, I think we've seen enough evidence in aggregate of, um, of, of people being promoted uh, to be judges and uh, bringing with them to the table, um, you know, a willingness to defend the indefensible or, or find rationalizations for it. I think, too, one thing, you know, in the States, um, we began to see in 2020, uh, before state legislatures largely adjourned in light of COVID, were sort of new anti-trans laws that were very closely modeled after anti-abortion laws. So we shifted from the laws targeting trans people around single-sex spaces and activities focused on trans students in schools, both in the context of restrooms and sports, into this criminalization of medical care for trans people, which was a wholly new way to target um, particularly trans young people, it's incredibly insidious because we're talking about cutting off and making a felony ongoing treatment um, and doing it in two different ways. One were sort of these outright bans also modeled after abortion in some ways. And then others looked more like the trap laws where you had sort of hyper-regulation of the providers themselves such that the care would be impossible to obtain, but it wasn't an outright ban by the face of it. Um, you know, where there were about 15 of those introduced and none passed at the time um, that COVID slowed down a lot of state legislative sessions. I think we're very likely to see those reemerge in 2021. Um, and depending what happens with the election, both at the state and the federal level. Uh, so it's definitely a new, a new mode of anti-trans attack that I think could have really dire consequences for trans youth um, and, and sort of paying attention to how that progresses in the coming months. 
Well, thank you guys. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and congrats on the movie. Thank you. Thank you. And again, you can see the Sundance award-winning film, The Fight, on July 31st in theaters and on demand. As always, thanks for listening. The killers of Berta Caceres had every reason to believe they'd get away with murder. Her work as an environmental activist won her the admiration of celebrities in California, politicians in Washington, and the indigenous communities she worked alongside in Honduras. It also earned her powerful enemies. On a new podcast from Bloomberg Green, Blood River follows a four-year quest to find Berta Caceres's killers. Join journalist Monty Real and the team from Bloomberg Green as they untangle false leads and mishandled evidence, taking listeners deep into a sector of international development that's marked by high-level corruption and rampant violence. Blood River debuts Monday, July 27th on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen.